Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. John, what is your random article today? I think we're back to corrugated cardboard (laughs) containers, Eric. Uh, My link today is Winpack, which is a company based in Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada. The company manufactures and redistributes packaging materials and products that are used to protect perishable foods, beverages, and also things that are used in healthcare applications. The company was founded in 1977 in Winnipeg and has nine production plants across North America. Hmm. What do you got? I have Paisley Rice Log House. Um. It's a historic home located near Meebane, Orange County, North Carolina. Believed to be late 18th century, and it's a log dwelling... Composed of two sections and follows the three-room Quaker plan, or the Continental plan. Located between the two sections is a chimney. The interior features vernacular Georgian woodwork. And it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1979. Hmm. National Register of Historic Places, huh? Yep. Huh. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Well, all right, so either we go for packaging box or we go for house box. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a toss-up here. Yeah, kind of kind of boxy. Kind of felt like giving us mm. boxes today. But it's hip to be square, so who cares? <laughs> well, the only um, links that I have on here would be to places... Or an architectural style, or a National Register of Historic Places. Yeah, the only links I have on mine are Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, Canada, <laughs> and North America. Hmm. I also have the link for type, the link for public, <laughs> and the link for... Nope, nope, sorry, that was it. There aren't any others. Oh, I do have a link to uh, Geographic Coordinate System. (laughs) Uh Aha! It's something. That sure is a thing. (laughs) Oh boy, this is tricky. This is tricky. We gotta pick ourselves Hmm. something real careful-like here. Hmm. Hmm. Let's talk about Winnipeg. Okay. So we'll start out with Winpack. W-I-N-P-A-K. Winpack. L-T-B. Yep. It's part of a Finland-based group, but we can't get to Finland from here, so... Yep, they didn't put in the link. (laughs) So we're going to go to Winnipeg. Winnipeg. In Manitoba. What a... What? What is that building? (laughs) Looks like it's eating the entire city. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure it's a perspective thing, but still, geez. Yeah, it looks like one of those uh, root system trees that we talked about a while ago. Yeah, it does. It's huge. What is that thing? Oh, it's the uh, Canadian Museum for Human Rights. <laughs> According to the little thing there. It has like its own steeple and stuff too. It's weird. Windowless. On that side, yeah. This building is really cool. I might have sort of 
gone off towards that already. <laughs> I saw that and I just was like, I'm there. That's a weird looking building. You're going to see that thing. Hey, you know what? Let's just jump over. Who cares okay. about Winnipeg? <laughs> yeah, forget Winnipeg. <laughs> okay, Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's a national museum in Winnipeg. It's located adjacent to the Forks, which we don't know what they are because we didn't read anything about Winnipeg. <laughs> but it's there. Uh, the purpose of the museum is to explore the subject of human rights with a special but not exclusive reference to Canada in order to enhance the public's understanding of human rights and to promote respect for others as well as to encourage reflect and dialogue. <laughs> It held its opening ceremonies in September 2014. Uh, established in 2008 through the enactment of Bill C-42, an amendment of the Canadian Museums Act, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights is the first new national museum created in Canada since 1967. And it is the first new national museum ever to be located outside of the National Capital Region. So that's kind of neat. Um... You can see some pictures over here on the right of how it was constructed. And you can see that it's a very odd asymmetrical building with a ton of windows on one side and some really cool stone stairs on the other side and sort of a steeple almost in the middle as though it's a church to human rights. Now, I got to say, I really enjoy this building. It's just so cobbled together. It's such a yeah. weird looking place from every angle you look at. It. You're just kind of like, huh. And you go around the other side, and it's still kind of a, huh, sort of reaction. There's nothing you can't, there's nothing you can look at this building at and say, not huh. Now, the history of this is that uh, in April 2003, uh, during the 21st anniversary of the signing of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, wow, they only did that in the 80s? Seems like they were kind of late to the game on having a basic bill of rights, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> the establishment of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights was announced as a joint partnership of the Asper Foundation, the Government of Canada, and the Providence of Manitoba, as well as the City of Winnipeg and the Forks North Portage Partnership. The Asper Foundation donated $20 million, which they want you to know, so I have a feeling they must have had a hand in this article, because like all those other places probably would have donated a fair amount of money, too. Yeah. Like, this does not look like a cheap building. <laughs> and, uh, apparently... Israel Harold Asper, otherwise known as Izzy Asper. Uh, he has a couple things after his name, like OC, Order of Canada, OM, Order of Manitoba, and OC, or QC, Queen's Council. He's credited with the idea and vision to establish the CMHR. So, I guess maybe that's why they specifically mention Asper Foundation, because he was the one that kind of came up with it and led the charge to build this thing. He was a Canadian lawyer, politician, and founder of the now-defunct media conglomerate, Can West Global Communications. And Asper hoped it would become a place where students from across Canada could come to learn about human rights. And he also saw it as an opportunity to revitalize downtown Winnipeg and increase tourism to the city, as well as increase understanding and awareness of human rights, promote respect to others, and encourage reflection, dialogue, and action. And I guess this guy was really old because after his death in 2003, his daughter Gail Asper spearheaded the project. Now on uh, April of 2007... Prime Minister Stephen Harper announced the government of Canada's intention to make the CMHR, which is what their abbreviation is for this museum, into a national museum. Uh, in March of 2008, Bill C-42, amending the Museums Act, making consequential amendments to other acts, received royal assent in Parliament with support from all political parties, creating the Canadian Museum for Human Rights as a National Museum. By the middle of 2008, a government-funded opinion research project had been completed by the TNS and the Antima Group. The ensuing report, based primarily on a focus group of participants, listed the following. 
which topics, and not in order of preference, might be covered by the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, key milestones and human rights achievements, both in Canada and throughout the world, current debates about human rights, and events where Canada showed a betrayal of or a commitment to human rights. So kind of celebrating their downfalls. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, at the same I mean, time, like, keeping keeping history correct. Not, yeah. like, allowing themselves yeah. to just have, like, the convenient, like, well, we did this, but <laughs> we're just going to glorify ourselves. No, yeah. they didn't do that. So I have Not to have like, some respect for them there. Like, uh, you know, textbooks where mm-hmm. you have, like, a little... You know, one page, less than one page blurb about like, hey, so slavery happened. On to the next thing. Let's ignore it. <laughs> like, no, that's not. You can't yeah. do that, man. Like, we messed up. Yeah. That needs, like, that, yeah. that needs to be said. And you can't just like yeah. overlook it. So I'm glad Canada took that stance. Like, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's healthy. I think that's how most of the world does it. So yeah. every once in a while, you get, you get you get like you know Texas or something where they, it's just kind of like well, no, we're going to ignore it because it's convenient. What? But yeah, in 2008, on December 19th, they had the groundbreaking ceremony at the site of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, and official construction began in April of the following year. And then construction was initially expected to be completed in 2012, but uh, the chair of the board resigned before his term was up, and a new interim chair was appointed, and the base building has been substantially complete since the end of 2012, and the museum's inauguration took place in 2014. So this is pretty recent, this building. And its official opening was the 19th of September, 2014. So we're talking a little over a year old now. And it was protested by several activist groups who expressed the view that their own human rights histories had been inaccurately depicted or excluded from the museum. And the First Nations musical group, A Tribe Called Red, who had been scheduled to perform at the opening ceremony, pulled out in protest against the museum's coverage of First Nations issues. So I'm assuming that means, like, um, like Native American people. Yeah, so about that whole thing I was saying, hey, I'm glad Canada didn't try to brush anything <laughs> under the rug. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess you can't get it all. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. So funding was pretty tricky. The time, the amount of money they spent on it by the time this thing opened in 2014 was approximately 351 million dollars. So that 20 million, that 20 million dollar contribution from that one group really wasn't that <laughs> wasn't that big. This is a drop in the pond. A pretty, a pretty big drop, but you know, a drop. Yeah. <laughs> to date, the government of Canada has allocated $100 million towards it. The government of Manitoba donated $40 million. The city of Winnipeg itself donated $20 million. The friends of the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, led by Gail Asper, presumably of said Asper Group, have raised more than $130 million in private donations from across Canada toward a final goal of $150 million, which is impressive. So I guess, <laughs> though the Asper Group themselves only donated $20 million, the continuing efforts of them is ultimately what's going to finish up the funding yeah, for this place. It would seem so. Yeah, and these uh, private sector pledges include $4.5 million from provincial, provincial crown corporations in Manitoba, and $5 million from the Government of Ontario. And the Canadian Museum for Human Rights has requested an additional $35 million in capital funding from the federal government to cover shortfalls. In April 2011, 
The museum received an additional $3.6 million from the city of Winnipeg, which was actually taken from a federal grant to the city in lieu of the taxes for the museum. Hmm. Now, the current operating hmm. budget is provided <laughs> by the government of Canada. Because, I mean, you can build this thing, but you have to <laughs> staff it and, and have exhibits and, yeah, and power. And, and, and it's a huge building. Yeah. That thing cannot be easy to power. There's a lot of stuff that goes into operating the building. Yeah. So much that it costs $22 million a year just to keep that thing up and running. <laughs> oh, hey, man. man. That's a lot. Just for a building. I hope there's a lot of employees there. I hope so, too. I hope that's not all just heating costs, but it's Canada. <laughs> it's Manitoba. It's that's Winnipeg. Very true. Like, it's so far north that, like, half of the year they have to spend, like, $2 million probably just in oil costs to keep that thing warm. <laughs> Although um, they all probably are used to the cold, so maybe they just wear a bunch of coats. Yeah, it's, it's slightly warmer inside, so, <laughs> you know, they just deal with it. Um, in December 2011, the museum announced that due to rising costs for the interior exhibits of the museum, the total construction costs increased by an additional $41 million to that aforementioned number of $351 million total just to get the building finished. In July 2012, the federal and provincial governments agreed to further increase the capital funding to the museum by up to $70 million each through a combination of federal loans and a provincial loan guarantee. The newest funding was essential for the completion of the interior exhibits so that the museum could officially open in 2014, already two years behind schedule. Well, so, uh, as far as the architectural goes, they had a competition, and they had 100 submissions from 21 countries worldwide, and the judging panel chose the design submitted by Antoine Pridoc, an architect from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, yeah, ABQ. <laughs> and his vision for the museum was a journey, beginning with... The descent into the earth, where visitors enter through the roots of the museum, and then visitors are led through the Great Hall in a series of vast spaces and ramps before culminating in the Tower of Hope, a tall spire protruding from the museum that provides visitors with views of downtown Winnipeg. And he was quoted as saying, I'm often asked what my favorite, my most important building is. I'm going on record right now. This is it. So, that's cool. And it says inspiration for this museum design came from natural scenery in uh, from Canada, including trees, ice, northern lights, the First, pe- First Nations people in Canada, and the rootedness of human rights action. Now, the base building has been substantially complete since the end of 2012. And throughout the foundation work of the museum, medicine bags created by the elders at Thunderbird House in Winnipeg were inserted into the holes made for piles and cas- caissons to show respect for Mother Earth. The museum website had two webcams available for the public to watch the construction as it progressed. For the construction of the Hall of Hope, full of illuminated alabaster ramps, more than three thousand (laughs) square meters and 15,000 tiles of alabaster were used, making it the biggest project ever done with alabaster. Hmm. Which is neat. Uh, On the 3rd of July, 2010... Queen of Canada Elizabeth II what? <laughs> unveiled the building's cornerstone. The stone bears the Queen's royal cipher and has embedded in it a piece of stone from the ruins of St. Mary's Priory at Runnymede, England, where it is believed the Magna Carta was approved in 1215 by King John. Queen of Canada still didn't still didn't realize that they had a Queen Regent. Thought they were done with that. Yeah. But I guess that's the only way you get out from under Britain without a war, <laughs> is you say. So you you don't rule us anymore, but you can still be our monarchs. <laughs> Sounds like we still rule you. Okay, whatever. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently there are ten 
permanent galleries at this place. And one being, what are human rights? And another one is Indigenous Perspectives, which includes a circular movie about First Nations concepts of rights and responsibilities to each other and the land. And um, then there's Canadian Journeys, which includes prominent exhibits on residential schools, missing and murdered Aboriginal women, forced relocation of Inuit, as well as Japanese during World War II, disabilities from Ryerson University, Chinese head tax, the Underground Railroad, Kamigata Maru, and the Winnipeg General Strike. That sounds like a fun one. Mm-hmm. And protecting rights in Canada, and then examining the Holocaust and other genocides, and the gallery on genocide includes the five genocides recognized by Canada, the Holocaust, the Holodomer, which is the Ukrainian famine, the Armenian genocide, the Rwandan genocide, and the Bosnian ethnic cleansing. And then there's turning points for humanity, breaking the silence, actions count, rights today, and finally inspiring change. Yeah, change has been inspired. Yeah, for some reason, I was assuming this had a lot more to do with Canadian human rights specifically. Mm-hmm. But apparently, it's just human it's, rights yeah. in general. Human, and, it's a museum of stuff they care about. <laughs> yeah, and notice one of those permanent exhibits is all about First Nations people, and there's even another one that has more about First Nations people. And they still got upset about not being represented. I guess I, I would have to see the exhibits yeah, with somebody who understood like what the real heritage of, of First Nations people in Canada was to really understand mm-hmm. like what's insulting about this exactly. Or yeah. maybe they also had the opportunity to, from that experience, beef up those exhibits before mm-hmm. they opened because they realized, oh, That's this true. is horribly incompetent. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, considering that they have, like, the entire world and the history of the world to cover with human rights, like, I don't know, you can't cover everything. So, I feel like giving the First Nations people one whole permanent exhibit to themselves is, you know, pretty good. But, yeah, it remains to be seen what actually the exhibit is like so so there are some definite definite uh controversies here i think it's the largest part of the article actually is all of the controversies over what has actually been included <laughs> in the museum um briefly you have the fact that it's close to the forks which is an aboriginal sacred site uh the Accusations of there's accusations of transphobia, transphobia, um, because of the fact that they invited Jermaine Greer, who has a long history of transphobic statements, um, to speak on feminism. They uh, had included some of the genocides that are more controversial or unrecognized by other countries uh, and as well as they left out uh, any mention of the Israeli-Palestine conflict <laughs> which as a western nation they definitely are involved in in some way shape or form um, <laughs> and they also have been accused of favoritism mm. which I mean yeah <laughs> that was going to happen probably honestly as much as I hate to admit it, it's just kind of, you know, going mm. to happen. Even if you're, even with the best intentions, people who aren't of, like, other people groups can't really represent <laughs> other people groups to the extent that they should be able to. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Canada, I feel like their parliament is probably as oligarchical and almost very, like, you know, uh, homogenous as ours is for the most part. Yeah. Like, lacking in diversity. <laughs> Yeah. At the very, uh, and that's putting it politely, <laughs> you know. Like. <laughs> yeah, 
think it's safe to say North America is mostly not very diverse. In well, at least not in our, our, our gubernatorial yeah. arenas. Like, you talk about, like, our populations themselves. Sure, they're yeah. diverse enough for being what they are. But uh, you look at our our ruling class, our politicians, and mm-hmm. our leaders making decisions, i.e. decisions to allocate funding to make museums such as this one, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get as much as you should, even if it is a museum about human rights. Yeah. It's going to be a museum that's probably going to ultimately end up tooting the horn of whoever <laughs> the people who contribute money to it are. Well, to be fair, they probably were like, you know what, we've spent $351 million on this thing already. To yeah. include even more would just, you know, it's just too much money. I mean, I'd insult to injury, basically. But, I mean, um, I feel like in the future, they can probably atone for some of these things. Yeah. Because exhibits change. Yeah, they have... I mean, see, the ones that I listed were only permanent exhibits, so obviously they also have rotating exhibits, mm-hmm. you know? So... So hopefully, like, yeah. that will, in time, work itself out. Mm-hmm. Uh Fortunately, I am of the opinion that at least building a museum, regardless of who you do or do not acknowledge, it's not going to be as horrible of an atrocity as you could have committed to against a people group <laughs> compared to almost anything else. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, eventually a museum thing, a museum exhibit could be rectified, mm-hmm. could be changed, and it's not terribly egregious that it hasn't been addressed immediately to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um... You know, I think that, the, that over time, they can probably fine-tune it and get it to the point where it actually is representative of what yeah. Canada, the people of Canada, think is, you know, appropriate for their human rights stance. Yeah. I feel like Canada has mostly been known for being pretty cool. <laughs> They've been known for being yeah. pretty nice people, generally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know... um, There's some hope for him. There's some hope for for this whole this whole thing. Anyway, you know we've spent I don't know like a million of time on this article. <laughs> I feel like have we yeah. spent a million of time? What's to say over there? Is it say say a million. We've spent half of time. Half of time <laughs> on this. Okay. All right. Well, that's solid. I mean, that's good. Yeah. I'm just I, I'm just I feel like we should probably you know maybe bounce go yeah. see some other things. Maybe uh you know go towards more uplifting topics not things like genocide mm. you mm. know that kind of thing start the year off with an uplifting kind of note yeah if there is any to be found that's <laughs> that's another thing isn't it um, even going to like a place you know nice little place Something. Like Albuquerque? Yeah. Albuquerque, New Mexico? Could go to Albuquerque. Let's go to the ABQ. <laughs> oh, nice. Look at this. This is a uh, cool place. There we go. Balloons. Look at all those balloons. That. So happy. Such happy. Wow. Now, Albuquerque, New Mexico is the setting of Breaking Bad, the most mm-hmm. populous city in the United States state of New Mexico. And it is also the county seat of Bernalillo County. The it's situated at the central part of the state, straddling the Rio Grande River, with a population of five hundred and fifty-seven thousand people. That's a, that's a good amount. Yeah, thirty-second largest city in the U.S. Not bad. Oh, and the Greater Albuquerque area, like the Metropolitan Statistical Area, mm-hmm. actually has a population of 902,000. Whoa. Triples. So, yeah. But it's also... <laughs> although the city itself is the 32nd largest city, the Greater Metropolitan Area is the 59th largest metropolitan area. So, you know, bigger population, but less... In the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. Albuquerque is also the home to the University of New Mexico, Kirtland Air Force Base, Sandia National Laboratories, Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute, 
Central New Mexico Community College, Presbyterian Health Services, and Petroglyph National Monument. Petroglyph National Monument. I don't know what that is. The Sandia Mountains also run along the eastern side of Albuquerque, and the Rio Grande flows through the city north to south. Albuquerque is also the home of the International Balloon Fiesta. Oh, that explains (laughs) that. A large gathering of balloons from around the world. The event takes place during the first week of October. Hmm. (laughs) This picture of Francisco Duke of Albuquerque. Oh my god. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It looks like somebody just drew on a fake mustache. (laughs) Like... It's this does not look appropriate at all. Yeah, let's we'll say it's graffitied somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the growing village was named by uh, this Francisco Cuervo y Valdez in honor of Francisco, Duke of Albuquerque who was Viceroy of New Spain from 1653 to 1660. And Francisco's title referred to the Spanish town of Albuquerque, which I did not know was a town. Okay. And the name of that derived from the Latin Albus Quercus, meaning white oak. And this name was probably a reference to the prevalence of cork oaks in the region which have a white hood when the bark is removed. Albuquerque is still a center of the Spanish cork industry, and the town coat of arms features a white cork oak. The first R in Albuquerque was later dropped, probably due to association with prominent General Alfonso <laughs> de Albuquerque. <laughs> Albuquerque. Albert Albuquerque. <laughs> his family title, among others, and then name, originated from the border Spanish town, but used a variant spelling in their name. The change was also in part due to the fact that the citizens found the original name difficult to pronounce. <laughs> Western folklore offers a different explanation, tracing the name of Albuquerque to the Gaelican word Albaricoque meaning apricot. The apricot was bought to New Mexico by Spanish settlers, possibly early as 1743. Hmm. As the story goes, the settlement was established near an apricot tree and became known as La Cuidad de Albuquerque. As frontiersmen were unable to correctly pronounce the Gaelican word, it became corrupted to Albuquerque. So, some interesting theories there. Yeah. Definitely, um, kind of, a uh, lot of possible explanations for such a word that I didn't know would have that many possible explanations. Yeah. You I mean, don't know that- which one to believe. The first one is very convincing, the whole Spanish thing. Yeah, I mean, New Mexico was part of New Spain. Yada, yada, yada. You get Albuquerque from the Spanish one. Right. It's a town in Spain, in Spain and then there's just an, all, you, all you do is drop an R. Yeah. Albuquerque, as opposed to Albuquerque. Yeah, I mean, it's not it, that big of a jump. It happens all the time in yeah in the English language or any language really. It's just like over time, people are like, you know what? I don't feel like saying this one letter, and you know, over time as they say it the way they want to say it, eventually gets put in the dictionary and that's the way it is. So I could definitely just see that happening. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't really buy the whole calling it Albuquerque after the Albaricoque meaning apricot thing. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see the climate being appropriate for growing an apricot because it has a river and it's warm pretty much all year round, but... Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I do like how both theories are like, people couldn't correctly pronounce the words. <laughs> so they, f- they change it to what it is. 
Albuquerque was founded in 1706 as the Spanish colonial outpost of Villa de Albuquerque. Which kind of seems to put the name mm. thing to bed right there, doesn't it? Uh, present-day Albuquerque retains much of its historical Spanish cultural heritage. Initially, it was a farming community, as it was strategically located... And it was also a strategically located military outpost along the Camino Real. The town was also the sheep herding center of the West. Spain established a presidio, or a military garrison, in Albuquerque in 1706. And after 1821, Mexico also had a military garrison there. The town of Albuquerque was built in the traditional Spanish village pattern, a central plaza surrounded by government buildings, homes, and a church. Uh, this central plaza has been preserved and is open to the public as a museum, cultural area, and center of commerce. It is referred to as Old Town Albuquerque, or simply Old Town. Hmm. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Didn't see that in uh, Breaking Bad, I remember. No. no they, didn't, well, they didn't really travel to the city itself. It was just kind of around, around <laughs> Albuquerque. Uh, it says that historically it's sometimes referred to as La Placita or Little Plaza in Spanish. On the north side of Old Town Plaza is San Felipe de Neri Church, built in 1793. It's one of the oldest surviving buildings in the city. And, uh, after American occupation of New Mexico, Albuquerque had a federal garrison and quartermaster depot. The Post of Albuquerque, from 1846 to 1867. And during the Civil War, Albuquerque was occupied by Confederate troops under General Henry Hopkins Sibley, who soon afterward advanced with his main body into northern New Mexico. And during his retreat from Union troops into Texas... He made a stand on April 8th, 1862 at Albuquerque and fought the Battle of Albuquerque against a detachment of Union soldiers commanded by Colonel Edward R.S. Canby. And it was a day-long engagement and led to few casualties. So, when the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad arrived in Albuquerque in 1880, it bypassed the plaza. It got rid of the old town, got it out of the equation, <laughs> locating the passenger depot and rail yards about two miles east, and what mm. quickly became known as New Albuquerque or Newtown. <laughs> Many Anglo merchants, mountain men, and settlers slowly filtered into Albuquerque, creating a major mercantile commercial center, which is now downtown Albuquerque. Due to a rising rate of violent crime, gunman Milt Yarberry was appointed to the town's as the town's first marshal that year. New Albuquerque was incorporated as a town in 1885 with Henry Jaffa as its first mayor. And it was incorporated as a city in 1891. Old Town remained a separate community until the late 1920s when it was absorbed by the city of Albuquerque. <laughs> Old Albuquerque High School, the city's first public high school, was established in 1879. Congregation Albert, a reformed synagogue established in 1897, is the oldest continuing Jewish organization in the city. It's kind of funny that uh, the original Albuquerque had to be, like, absorbed by the new Albuquerque. <laughs> yeah. The one that started it all, it's like, oh, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you, why don't you come along and join us? Well, We're the real Albuquerque of, here. <laughs> it kind of shows you, like, the succession of towns in general. I mean, if this yeah. is, in fact, based off of the Albuquerque in Spain, the Albuquerque in Spain is only 5,000 people big. <laughs> Whereas New Albuquerque was is already was already bigger. Yeah. And then New Albuquerque was the old became old Albuquerque. <laughs> and then there was a new Albuquerque beside the old Albuquerque but New New was, Albuquerque. Yeah. <laughs> new New Albuquerque, literally. Like a Spanish person could have say like if they had cryogenic freezing chambers tried to be <laughs> delivering like, you know, Spanish cuisine, maybe a Spanish pizza or something mm. to a New Year's party or something Spanish like that. Could have stumbled pizza. into a cryogenic chamber, gotten frozen in time for like five hundred years, could have woken up and gone to New New Albuquerque. Mm. Yeah. Met some crazy friends, had some crazy adventures. <laughs> Maybe ran into some aliens. Doesn't mean it's close to, you know, where alien sightings happen. It's true. So It's very close. Yeah. New Mexico. 
would have been like the future for them. <laughs> Some sort of future Rama. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rama of future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all because of a railroad. It makes sense. Just kind of seems yeah. a little... <laughs> Like you couldn't have built it, it's Santa, it's New Mexico. Like yeah. it's all flat. You couldn't have built it <laughs> two miles more that direction. You just didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, they found out their trajectory was off, and they were like, eh. Eh. <laughs> "This is more efficient this way anyway. We just don't dip that far south. We keep yeah. going." Yeah, it's kind of like highways now. Yeah. Now it's like, hey, we're bringing a highway through this way. Changes everything. Wow. So. In 1900, it only had 8,000 inhabitants. And they grow up so fast. And all these cities building up so quickly. They also had a bunch of modern amenities, including an electric street ra- railway in 1900. Wow. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Ooh. Panoramic view of Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Huh? A lot greener than I expected, too. Yeah. I was not expecting there to be trees. It doesn't look as city-ish no. when you look at it from that view. Lots of green, a couple of buildings, big mountain. There's also a good view here of the Albuquerque Basin. You can see how flat everything is. Mm, yeah. But there is a lot of development going on. Lots of houses everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, housing doesn't look as, like, square and straight as it, as I would have expected. I don't know. I just kind of assume all cities and stuff in the southwest are just kind of, like, straight lines, easy yeah. to, you know... I feel like this one probably, since this one was 8,000 people big in 1900, that when it expanded, mm. it was probably more recent. That's true, yeah. Probably the whole shift thing of, you know... Moving to curvy the, development yeah. streets and so forth, that probably hit them pretty big. Yeah, if they had to rebuild over two miles over to get the railroad, then... I mean, some of it's in a grid-type formation. If you look at the pictures of the satellite image taken by NASA or the aerial view taken of the Albuquerque core, Mm. there is a a portion of the city which is all, like, gridified. But it's definitely not, like, huge. Like, there's just, like, a little bit of it that's just, like, a grid, and the rest of it's kind of like, well, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if this is good or not. Sounds good. What? But... Uh, under climate says that Albuquerque averages 3,415 sunshine hours per year. 300 what? 3,415 sunshine hours per year. Mm, That sounds pretty good. It does sound pretty good. Okay, okay. So that's almost 10 hours of sunshine a day. Averaged out. Right? Yep, almost. So that means that their winter days are nowhere near as dark as our winter days are, basically. Mm. Yeah. Which is, you know, that'd be kind of nice. That'd be a good thing. <laughs> oh, and it does say brilliant sunshine defines the region, ah. averaging 278 days a year. Periods of variably mid and high level cloudiness temper the sun at other times. Extended cloudiness is rare. The city has four distinct seasons, but the heat and cold are mild compared to the extremes that occur more commonly in other parts of the country. Hmm. Well, it's nice that they at least have seasons. Yeah. Uh, So they do have winters, but they are brief. Ah, okay. And in their, December is their coldest month, but they average temperatures of 36.3 degrees. That's really not so, bad at all. Yeah. It's cold, but it's not, like, you know... Unbearable. Yeah. And people there are... They've seen snow. Obviously, there's a picture here of there being yeah. a snowstorm, but generally, it's not that big of an issue. Mm-hmm. 
It says that they average around nine inches of snow per winter. Uh, actually, and experiences several accumulating snow events each season. Hmm. So there's also an article here, or part of an article here, about hydrology in the region. Hmm. Uh, which is kind of interesting because, yeah, I, I was thinking that Albuquerque was sort of located in outside of the Rio Grande itself, like a, a kind of a desertish sort of area, like the rest of New Mexico was. But uh, it says that the water presently comes from a combination of the Rio Grande, so I wasn't wrong, and also a delicate aquifer that was once described as an underground Lake Superior. <laughs> Whoa, that's a pretty <laughs> big claim. Yeah. Uh, the Albuquerque Bernario County Water Utility Authority, or the ABC, <laughs> was developed under a water resources management strategy which pursues conservation and the direct extraction of water from the Rio Grande for the development of a stable underground aquifer in the future. The aquifer of the Rio Perico is too saline to be cost-effectively used for drinking purposes, and much of the rainwater that Albuquerque receives does not recharge its aquifer. It's mm. diverted through a network of paved channels and arroyos and emptied into the Rio Grande. Hmm. Ooh. So, of the 62,780 acre-feet per year of the water in the upper Colorado River Basin entitled to municipalities in New Mexico by the upper Colorado River Basin Compact. Albuquerque owns 48,200. Wow. So they basically own that thing. <laughs> yeah. And yep, it's delivered to uh, the Rio Grande by the San Juan Channel Project. San Juan Chama Project. San Juan Chama. Sounds like a band. <laughs> so it's river water diverted from the Colorado River Basin. Yeah. I wonder what that project is. I wonder what that does to do that. Well, the project's construction was initiated by legislation enacted by John F. Kennedy himself huh. in 1962, and it was completed in 1971. And this diversion project transports water under the Continental Divide from Navajo Lake to Lake Huron on the Rio Chama, a tributary of the Rio Grande. And in the past, much of this water was resold to downstream owners in Texas. And these arrangements ended in 2008 with the completion of the ABC Was Drinking Water Supply Project. The ABC was drinking water supply project uses a system of adjustable height dams to skim water from the Rio Grande into sluices. Sluices. <laughs> sluices. Which lead to water treatment facilities for direct conversion to potable water. Some water is allowed to flow through the central of Albuquerque, mostly to protect the endangered Rio Grande silvery minnow. Treated effluent water is recycled into the Rio Grande to the south of the city. The ABC uh, never ex er, the ABC uh, expects river water to compromise to comprise up to 70% of its water budget in 2060. Wow. Groundwater will constitute the remainder. One of the policies of the ABC was strategy is the acquisition of additional river water. Mm. Good plan. Mm-hmm. All right, so there's quadrants of this city. Got the northeast, the northwest, the southeast, and the southwest. Very simple. I like yep. it. It's much better than having, like, 25 <laughs> different neighborhoods that, you know, aren't necessarily geographically affiliated with their names. And yeah. It's messy. They keep it organized over there. Okay, so... Uh, one of the major events in the state is the Summertime New Mexico Arts and Crafts Fair, a non-profit show exclusively for New Mexico artists and held annually in Albuquerque since 1961. Albuquerque is home to over 300 other visual 
arts, music, dance, literary, film, ethnic, and craft organizations, museums, festivals, and associations. There are some points of interest in Albuquerque, which are pretty cool. Some of the uh, some of them include the Albuquerque Biological Park, the Albuquerque Museum, the Museum of Natural History and Science, and Old Town Albu- Albuquerque. <laughs> There's also an, uh, botanical gardens. It says local cuisine prominently features green chili which is widely available in restaurants, including national fast food chains. Huh. And the restaurant scene of Albuquerque is quite prominent throughout the city, and local restaurants receive statewide attention, alongside several of them becoming chains throughout the state. The Sandia Sandia Peak Tramway, located adjacent to Albuquerque, is the world's second largest passenger aerial tramway. It also has the world's third lar- longest single span. The It stretches from the northeast edge of the city to the crestline of the Sandia Mountains. Elevation at the top of the tramway is roughly 10,000 feet above sea level. Pretty good. Yeah. So it looks like the most popular style of architecture in New Mexico, er, Albuquerque is the Pueblo Revival style. And it was based in Santa Fe, but received important uh, Albuquerque commission in 1933 as the... Uh... Wait. Uh, It was started by John Gall Meme, who was based in Santa Fe but received an important Albuquerque commission in 1933 as the architect of the University of New Mexico. And he retained this commission for the next quarter century and developed the university's distinctive Southwest style. Meme also designed the Cathedral Church of St. John in 1950. And it says Albuquerque boasts a unique nighttime cityscape. Many building exteriors are illuminated in vibrant colors such as green and blue. And the Wells Fargo building is illuminated green. And the Doubletree Hotel and Compass Bank building are illuminated blue. The rotunda of the county courthouse is illuminated yellow, while the tops of Albuquerque and the Bank of the West are illuminated reddish-yellow. Due to the nature of the soil in the Rio Grande Valley, the skyline is lower than might be expected in a city of comparable size elsewhere. Ooh, that's pretty looking. I looked up an image of the uh, nighttime skyline of uh, New Mexico. It's cool. Cool uh, colors going on there. Mm, yeah. That Wells Fargo building sure is green. <laughs> green like money. <laughs> So, Albuquerque has expanded a lot since the 1940s. During those years of expansion, the planning of the newer areas has considered that people drive rather than walk. The pre-1940s parts of Albuquerque are quite different in style and scale from the post-1940s areas. These older areas include the North Valley, the South Valley, various neighborhoods near downtown, and Corrales. The newer areas generally feature four to six lane roads in a one mile grid. Each one square mile is divided into four 160 acre neighborhoods by smaller roads set half mile between major roads. When driving along major roads in the newer sections of Albuquerque, one sees strip malls, signs, and cinder block walls. Mm-hmm. The upside of this planning style is that neighborhoods are shielded from the worst of the noise and lights on the major roads. The downside is that it's virtually impossible to go anywhere from home without driving. Okay, so here we go. Here's something. Oh, yeah? Uh, The minor league affiliate of the Colorado Rockies Mm -hmm. is called the Albuquerque Isotopes. No way. And they derived their name from the Simpsons episode, Hungry Hungry Homer which involves the Springfield Isotopes baseball team 
considering relocating to Albuquerque. <laughs> yes. Which is one of the greatest <laughs> sports-related things I've ever heard. That's the best thing. That's so good. <laughs> I'm so glad that they They did, did that. that. <laughs> oh, wow. Whoa, and... Uh, Albuquerque is also ranked number one as the fittest city in the United States. Hmm. Now I'm interested in the media portion. Let's see where this shows up. In the media portion? Yeah, like where in pop culture. Ah. Yes, of course. Where could Albuquerque have been prominently (laughs) featured? Hmm. It is a true mystery. (laughs) Oh, something I did not know. All three of the High School Musical movies are set in Albuquerque. (laughs) Wait, what? Okay, yeah, legitimately did not know that. Also, didn't know Albuquerque was... Didn't consciously know Albuquerque was the site of movies such as Brothers, Sunshine Cleaning, or Little Miss Sunshine. Mm. Though, two out of those three movies include the word sunshine, so... (laughs) Yeah, and I also did not realize that most of the Avengers was filmed in Albuquerque Studios. That's kind of interesting. I could, I mean, all the scenes in New York. I guess mm-hmm. really there weren't that many. I mean, they could have filmed yeah, the majority of, like the helicarrier and like the low percentage of the movie that was actually filmed elsewhere. Or that actually makes sense. Like, think about that base that they open the movie with that, mm. like, destroys itself. Spoilers at the first, like, <laughs> onset of the film. Like, that whole thing was on a really flat piece of ground. Yep. It would totally make sense if they built, like, a, a <laughs> set for that in Albuquerque. Yep. In music, um, we have one of the greatest Weird Al songs, Albuquerque. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's also a Neil Young song called Albuquerque. Probably not as good. <laughs> oh, and the Shins are based out of Albuquerque. Hey, that's a pretty good band. Yeah. Hmm. You know, <laughs> Albuquerque is also the setting for the television shows In Plain Sight, and I didn't know Breaking Bad was also set here. Hmm. It's crazy. As crazy. well as. That show's spin-off show, spin-off? Better Call Saul. Oh, of course. It's about uh, about Jesse. Got it. It's yep. about Jesse Pink <laughs> <laughs> and his continuing misadventures. <laughs> and him constantly having to call Saul. Yep. And Saul's just <laughs> saying, Jesse, I can't idiot. solve all your problems. Oh, and then there's a laugh track. <laughs> <laughs> it's much lighter-hearted, much lighter-hearted yeah. than the original series. Went into a very different direction. Yeah, one. yeah, for sure. You know, I haven't really learned that much about Better Call Saul. We should probably go <laughs> look about, look at, look at that. Go, go, learn us, and see if it's any good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Better Call Saul is an American television drama series, huh? Drama. <laughs> Didn't think they were gonna go that way with it. Created by Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. It's a prequel and spin-off of Breaking Bad, which was also created by Vince Gilligan. Set in 2002, Better Call Saul follows the story of small-time lawyer James Morgan or Jimmy McGill, played by Bob Odenkirk, six years before he appeared in Breaking Bad as Saul Goodman. Events after the original series are briefly explored. The first season premiered in February of 2015 on AMC, and a second season will premiere in... 2016 on February 15th. Mm. Almost a month. Mm-hmm. So close. <laughs> so close to this show. This is the second season that I definitely know about. Man, and this show has been in the talks since 2012 when Vince Gilligan hinted at a possible spinoff from Breaking Bad. And he said he liked the idea of a lawyer show in which the main lawyer will do anything it takes to stay out of a court of law. And then in 
2013, the series was confirmed to be in development by Gilligan and Gould. And um, Gould actually was the guy that wrote the episode that introduced Saul. Hmm. Which is cool. Yeah, that's kind of cool that I carried over. So, yeah, Bob Odenkirk plays Saul Goodman. And... Uh, also, Jonathan Banks plays a recurring role as Mike Ehrmantraut. And there could be possible guest appearances by other members of the Breaking Bad cast. But um, there is a new character on this show, played by Michael McKean, who is Saul's brother, Chuck. And some of the other new cast members include Patrick Fabian as Howard Hamlin, uh, Rhea Seahorn as Kim Wexler, and Michael Mando as Ignacio Nacho Varga. Huh. So, it seems like there was a little bit of hesitation for this at first. By 2013, in July, the series had yet to even be greenlighted. <laughs> now, Netflix was also interested in distributing the series, but ultimately a deal was made between AMC and Breaking Bad production company Sony Pictures Television. Gilligan and Gould serve as co-showrunners, and Gilligan directed the pilot. Former Breaking Bad writers Thomas Schnauz and Jennifer Hutchinson joined the writing staff, with Schnauz serving as co-executive producer and Hutchinson as supervising producer. Also on the writing staff are Bradley Paul and Gordon Smith, who was a writer's assistant on Breaking Bad. In developing the series, the producers considered making the show a half-hour comedy, but they ultimately (laughs) chose an hour-long format more typical of drama. In October 2014, Odenkirk called the show 85% drama, 15% comedy. During his appearance on Talking Bad, Odenkirk noted that Saul was one of the most popular characters on the show, speculating that the audience likes the character because he is the program's least hypocritical figure and he is good at his job. (laughs) Better Call Saul also employs Breaking Bad's signature time jumps. And finally, on June 12th, or June 2nd, 2014, um, filming began, but... Gilligan expressed some concern regarding the possible disappointment from the series' turnout, but it went on to gain critical and commercial success. Despite this, the order of Season 2 episodes was initially at 13 episodes ordered, but they reduced it later to 10 now, personally, I don't think it's a reason for concern. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think TV shows need to not have as much filler <laughs> in them as they do. So giving yeah. them fewer episodes to work with is better because it Just allows them, them to yeah. tell them the story. allows them to tell the story in a tighter fashion. Yeah. It says that there are prominent Breaking Bad guest appearances being made from characters that have yet to be seen, but uh, Gillian says that they are happening. Ooh, and Brian Cranston is scheduled to direct an episode in 2015. Mm. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. The first season got 10 episodes. So. I feel like. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I would be okay if every season was just 10 episodes. It seems like they keep, keep it keep consistent. It. Yeah, yeah. Rather than all this jumping around. Indeed. The, so- the series has a score of 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's something. And of those 100%, 8.1 out of 10. Pretty good. Yeah. Alright, so that's about it for Better Call Saul. And about it for us, too, it looks like. Yeah. So there you have it from Windpack to Better Call Saul. What a strange. Turn of <laughs> We sure packed that one up pretty good. <laughs> So, yep. Uh, if you enjoyed this, please visit facebook.com slash TWC podcast and like us and follow us. Head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can always check out new episodes on the website, twc.erictoribio.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. 
and Sharky Bonanno for our outro song. <laughs> yes. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. That name on that outro <laughs> musician, let me tell you, that sure was a thing. <laughs>